This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. We're starting a brand new series today called Blueprints. And here's kind of the, the backdrop if you haven't been here for a few weeks is just to understand that we have spent uh, the beginning of 2015 looking at what is normal, right? And, and we, we've assessed normal as being broken and not working very well, right? Because normal in, in, in our finances is being broke, living on, on with more expenses than we actually make in money, right? Uh, the average family spending more money the, each month. They're going in debt with credit cards and consumer debt, right? That's normal financially. What's normal in, in, in our jobs is just going somewhere because I, I got to get a paycheck. It's not what God called me to do. It's not really something I find fulfilling. But, and, and what's normal in marriage? What's normal in relationships? I mean, we don't have to look too far to see the evidence to know that normal in relationships is broken and not working. As a matter of fact, I... I, there, there's a book that's coming out in two or three weeks. I saw the interview with the with the author. She she wrote this book based on research, and she calls American culture today throwaway culture. Because you know, if we went back thirty or forty years, when when you broke something, you fixed it. The TV broke, you took it to the TV repairman, right? And you got the TV fixed. You know what happens when our TVs break today? We throw them away and we upgrade. Right? The same thing happens in our relationships. When we hit a broken spot in a relationship, our culture has given up on marriage. Because we live in a culture that wants to throw it away. But I want to tell you today that even though the culture that we live in has given up on marriage, Jesus has not. And God has a plan for our relationships that sets us up in a way that relationships will be fulfilling and life-giving. And if we'll look at his blueprint, not read the blueprint that culture is laying before us, if we'll look at his blueprint, we can be set up in such a way that we can live in that fullness. Because normal is not working especially in our relationships. You see, when sin entered the world, sin first attacked the context of relationships. I mean, think about that with me. Adam and Eve are made perfect. God finds Adam, and we read this in this one like it's like an oops on God. God found Adam and he was lonely. That's not an oops, right? It's not like it just snuck up on God. God's demonstrating for us that there's a, a need inside of all of us that we would be connected in community, that we would be known and loved. He's saying, hey, if you were just by yourself and it was always perfect, you'd still be lonely. Right? There's a need for significant relationships. And so God creates Eve, gives her to Adam as the perfect mate, the complementary person to who he was. And then what happens next? 
Satan shows up to destroy their relationship. See, marriage is vitally important. It's so important. Let me just give you an an if statement, a a possibility that that we don't want to even kind of mentally uh, deal with, but but it's something that, that I want you to think about how significant marriage is. If in the span of a few weeks, my relationship with my awesome wife Amanda were to fail, and she were to leave me and I were to leave her, and then the relationships of our staff members, their their marriages began to fail one after another and then go to our our board members and their relationships and marriages began to fail. You want to know what, what happened to our church? Our church would fail. Marriage is a wonderful, powerful institution that was began by God. Just think about this. Marriage was installed way before God ever leveraged the church. The family is a powerful tool that God set on this earth to promote change and to change us. And as a culture, we've walked away. Walked away from God's plans. I mean, let me just give you some statistics on that. Let me just share some things. Right now, if we were to kind of survey um, average adults, we would find that the, out of our survey, 78% of adults would say, I've been married at one point, all right? So there's a percentage that hasn't, but the majority of people would say inside Christian churches, that, that number's going to bump up to around 85%, Okay? So marriage as, as an institution is impacting a lot of us. And even if you're not married, it's impacting you because your friends are married and they're coming to you and talking to you about their marriage, right? Here's what we know. Right now, based on statistical studies, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. All right? That's great hope in there. We're seeing the numbers change. Um, a statistic that was released about five years ago shows that about 67% of first-time marriages end in divorce. It is absolutely rare these days to find the two people who got married, stuck it out, did a lifetime of love together. It is rare to find that. And it shifted the way we think about the institution of marriage. In a Time Magazine poll, trying to gauge the way young women feel about marriage. This is a remarkable statistic. 61% of women between the ages of 18 and 49, 61% said that if they had to raise a child, that they would prefer to raise the child alone rather than raising it in a home where they were uh, married but there was conflict. I, I don't know if you've, if you've never been married. Let me just go ahead and tell you, there's always conflict when you're married. <laughs> this just always is. It's always there. It's always going to be there. And so we've got, we, we've got a culture that's starting to look and say, you know what? 
I don't, I don't even know if I find this valuable anymore. I mean, think about it. When you're watching your favorite TV show, and you have those big, you know, season finales and you find out that so-and-so has been having an affair on his spouse or his wife or this woman's been cheating. Immediately, we start rooting for that marriage to end. Because we've given up on marriage. And I, I just want to say this. I, I want to I pray that as we step into this series, that God would heal marriages in this church. That, that within, within the, the, the church family that we have right here, that God would do. We've been praying for weeks now saying, God, do something in my life. I'm, I'm praying that God does some miracles in some families. That God heals some brokenness. That God brings us out of some selfishness. That God opens our eyes. And for those of you that are, that are single, that are here, I'm praying that God will set a platform as we study what His design is in blueprints. He will set a platform for you so that you can build and grow in a healthy way when God gives you that person to grow with. All right? So here's what I want to do today. I, I, I want to give you today four steps to divorce-proof your marriage. That's a bold statement, but I'm going to promise you, if you're doing these four things, there is absolutely no way you can wreck your marriage. Y'all ready? That's good stuff right there. That's a big promise, isn't it? Let's get started. Number one, number one, keep the marriage covenant sacred. Keep the marriage covenant sacred. You see, marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. And in Jesus' day, as he was teaching and, and ministering, he was in a, in a culture where men would simply say, you know what, my wife is not as attractive as she was when we first got married. I'm going to put her out to pasture. I'm going to divorce her. I'm going to get a younger model. There were men who would say, my wife's had have done some things that I find to be inexcusable. And so the Pharisees came to him in Matthew 19 and decided to test him on what was going on. Let's read together. The Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And then this is how Jesus responds. Haven't you read, he replied, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Haven't you read that? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together. I want you to understand today that marriage is not a, a contract between you and someone else. It's a covenant between you and God. Right. Marriage is a covenant with God. I don't care if you got married on a beautiful ranch with all your family surrounding you in flowers. I don't care if you got married drunk on a cruise ship. 
All right, either, either place, when you got married, you stood before God and made a covenant. All right, marriage is a covenant. So I think the question is, well, what is a covenant? You see, a covenant is an agreement where the person making the agreement says, I give up all of my rights and I assume all the responsibility. You know, when we take communion, we get prepared to to drink the, the wine or the grape juice that represents the blood of Jesus, we say this is a new covenant in his blood. Do you realize that God made a covenant with you? It's exactly what he did with you. He gave up all of his rights, assumed all the responsibility, took all of your sin to the cross. But you want to know what most of us want to live in in our marriages? We want to live in a contract, not a covenant. See, a contract assumes only the, the parts of the responsibility that we, we find good and accessible, right? We, we don't want those things. I'm not going to be responsible for some of those things. And it doesn't give up any of its rights. And the thing that we need to realize is that that marriage is, is a sacred covenant with us, not just with us and, and our spouse. It's a covenant with us and God. That's why when I do premarital counseling, I, I totally throw the, the bride and the groom a curveball in the last session, and I will tell them, I'm going to give you two questions to pray about. These questions can either shut down this wedding or it will open you up to God's design. And then I turn to the bride and I'll say, I don't want you to talk to him about this at all, but I want you, even if you've prayed about this before, I want you to pray until you hear God. God, do you want me to marry this man? And if God says yes, let's go. Let's do it. Let's enjoy it. But if God says no, I ain't doing it. See, because if God says yes, you can trust God. Right? God says marry him. Man, when, when it comes time to submit to your husband, right, that's, that's not just submitting to God or submitting to your husband anymore. Now it's submitting to God, right? Because God said, marry him, and you followed him. Right? See, most of us struggle with covenant in the context of our relationships because we're not living in covenant with God. We're actually trying to live on a contract basis with God trying to negotiate what we can do and what we can't do. This is such a big issue that I'm actually going to come back and preach a whole message on this next week because most of us are contract Christians. And there's no way for us to live in covenant with one another if we're not living in covenant with God. I guess maybe the greatest illustration of the difference between the, the kind of commitment that's represented in a covenant and a, a contract with, 
was found in, in this moment. When, when I was in my, my last church, we, we wrote this song and we started doing it and it was really popular. And, and all, you know, it's one of those songs where you start singing and everybody sings and they sing real loud. And uh, about, about a month later, this girl came in and she came up to me. She's like, Kevin, you got to look at this. She started taking her shirt off. I was like, what? That's never a good way to start a conversation with a young girl. It's with her pulling up the back of her shirt. And she did that. And she had tattooed on her back the lyrics from that song. And I remember thinking, God, I hope you like this song. I really hope you like this song. I mean, and because you could have got a bumper sticker. Right? You could have got some of them vinyl letters on the back of your car. Right? You could peel them off in a couple years when you, when you don't like the song anymore. But you, now it's there. You're committed to it. This is your song. Right? This is yours. Like, you better love this thing. You know, far too many of us have approached the kind of commitment that God wants us to have in, in that marriage relationship as a contract. We've, we've wiped it on. Do you, do you know that today in some European countries when you go to get your marriage license, it has an expiration date on it? Just like your driver's license? If y'all still together in 15 years, just come over and we'll renew it, you know. But we need to approach marriage commitment as a covenant commitment, a covenant relationship. So step number one, keep the marriage covenant sacred. Number two, die to yourself and serve your mate. Die to yourself and serve your mate. Die to yourself and serve your mate. I just, just as we kind of get into this, let me just go ahead and tell you this. The, the greatest enemy to a healthy relationship is a selfish person. Right? That's the greatest enemy to a healthy relationship. And the greatest enemy to a healthy marriage is a selfish spouse. I'm going to read Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. This is kind of the, it, the best writing in all the Bible on marriage. Right? This is where we get wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Here we go. Beginning in verse 21, where we normally don't begin, understand that the Bible says this, submit to each other, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. That's where it all begins. It doesn't start there. It doesn't matter. Number, then in verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Very little room to wiggle out of that one today. No, 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleaning her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And for he who loves his wife loves himself. See, I want to tell you something today about, about marriage that's important for you to know. If you're going to have a healthy marriage, you have to lose yourself. All of that 
identity that you've worked so hard to create about who you are and what you do and what you like to do and the things that you enjoy, you have to lose that if you want to have a healthy marriage. You have to die to yourselves. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Husbands, give yourself up for your wives, just like Christ was willing to sacrificially give himself up for the church. And as I was studying this week, I realized this. Often in Christian marriages, we take those standards and we judge our spouse against them. I want you to understand that the Bible at no moment gives you permission to enforce God's standard on your spouse. He doesn't. Not not at one moment. It doesn't give you permission as a wife to sit there and nag your husband and say, when are you going to start leading me like you're supposed to? When are you going to start being the kind of leader that loves Jesus and sacrificially loves our family? You know why it doesn't do that? Because when your husband finally does step up, when your husband finally hits that moment where he realizes what God's called him to do, you need to know and he needs to know that he's doing it because he's responding to Jesus, not you. See, the best marriages are two dead people who are serving each other. Two dead people who are serving each other. And I know there's some of you in here, y'all are thinking right now, you know what? You seem like you got all the answers right now, Kevin. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know what I come home to every day. You don't understand. My wife is crazy. You don't. I know there's some of y'all thinking that. Can I just tell you right now that when anybody calls me and says, hey, I want to sit down and talk about my marriage. When couples come in, I can list out four things and invariably three of those four are present. You're not that different. The stuff you're struggling with is not that unique. Stop making excuses of why you can't be the person that God called you to be. Because if God called you to be it, it's better than what you are right now. I promise you that. See, in the context of relationships, as you read Ephesians 5, it's about a husband who is willing to serve his wife, a wife who is willing to serve her husband. You see, serving is important because serving is the antidote to selfishness. And I don't know if you know anybody who's just habitually, perpetually selfish. You don't know anybody like that? This is all the time, everything's about them. Do you know anybody who's like that and happy? You don't. Because it's impossible to be selfish and be happy. See, selfishness 
is going to destroy a relationship. But when we serve, serving is the antidote to that. And I just want to give you some advice when it comes to serving in the context of relationships. If you do something for somebody and you expect an immediate result, that's not serving. See, serving is doing something and doing it for them no matter what they want to do with it. It's a gift. I don't expect you to do anything because I'm doing this. I'm serving you. But see, when you do something and you expect a response from it, that's manipulation. That's not serving. Don't get confused on those two things. Die to ourselves. Serve your mate. Number three, speak in a way that encourages and gives life to what Jesus is doing. See, I don't, I don't know if your family is, is like mine. Uh, we, we kind of get into these arguments from time to time. Anybody been fighting with their spouse in the last three days? Don't raise your hand. You're going to get in trouble. All right, don't raise your hand, right? See, it's always kind of like in the relationship that is so intimate and close, like a marriage relationship, there's always some tension. It's like there's always a fire burning. And I'm the guy that always likes to come in and pour a little gasoline on the fire, make it real big, right? When God calls us to pour some water on it. I want you to look at two verses out of Proverbs that help us understand what words should be like, especially in the context of conflict and tension within a relationship. Proverbs ten nineteen. Too much talk leads to sin. This is kind of like my life verse. Um, be sensible and keep your mouth shut. And you know why that's so important? It's found right here in Proverbs twelve eighteen. Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. You see, when we get frustrated, tense, when we hit those moments, we say things we wouldn't normally say. As a matter of fact, we begin to behave ways that we wouldn't normally behave, and the things that we say matter. They make a difference, and they make a lasting impact. It's like squeezing that toothpaste out. You can't get it back in no matter how hard you try. You know, the University of Washington did a study. They took 30 couples for 10 years. And they went into their homes and they recorded every single conversation that they had. Let me just tell y'all something. There ain't enough money in Albemarle for me to volunteer for a study like that. All right. They did, and they found, you know, out of the 30 couples, like you would guess, many of them did not make it the 10 years. And when they went back and began to study and research on the couples that did not make it, they found four stages in their communication that led to their divorce. Let me go through this with you. So you can understand the red flags that might be there. The first stage is what they call the stage of constant criticism. Constant criticism. Both sides were constantly looking at something to nitpick and criticize about. Which led to stage two. They called it defensiveness. Now they've been so critical that every time there's a real problem, there's something that's really there, it's a real significant issue, there should be a conversation about this, they're defensive. 
And they can't have the conversation because they're constantly working to defend themselves and they can't see what's going on. And that defensive posture doesn't allow any resolution, so it leads to step three, which is what they called unresolved anger. Well, they haven't went and dealt with the problems that have been there. Now they're dealing with hurt and frustration that comes from, from years backwards. So their communication is constantly angry and frustrated. And they're talking and yelling and fighting about stuff that hadn't even happened in the last couple days. And that led to what they called stage four stonewalling. That after that, for a little while, they checked out. Became indifferent about what was going on. And in most of the couples, they found that the inciting incident in their divorce was that one of the couple, one of the, one of the partners, found somebody that was meeting an emotional need outside of their relationship. Because they no longer were intimate and caring with each other. The way we talk to each other is important. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to give you four, four things to remember when it comes to communicating in the middle of conflict. Number one, this is important, y'all. Number one, leave the past in its place. Leave the past in its place. Mean it when you've forgiven someone. I, I, want, you to, I want you to understand, I've said this a bunch before, but the only way a relationship's going to last is grace. You're going to have to forgive someone, and if you're constantly pulling the things up that you're supposed to have forgiven, all you're doing is setting yourself up for failure. Leave the past in its place. When you've forgiven someone, leave it there. Number two, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. All right? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's the tone of your voice. It's your body language. It's how aggressive you are in saying it. It's what your face looks like. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And even with those things in place, there are going to be times that you're going to get angry. And the conversation is going to go places that you don't want it to. Here's number three. Take a time out. Take a time out. And if your time out is the same place that your spouse wants to take a time out, take time out somewhere else. <laughs> Right, think about boxers or MMA fighters when they're fighting. They don't like put them in the same corner, right? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. They're the opposite ends of the ring. Why? Because there's a timeout. And sometimes we need a little bit of a break. And you might very well do that. Go to the gym. Get a workout. Go for a drive. Go for a walk. Go for a run. Take a timeout. And here's a big one. Number four, refuse to major on the minors. Refused to major on the minors. When they went back at the University of Washington and studied the things that were, were addressed in these conversations as these couples began to kind of amplify the conflict within their relationships, they found that they were fighting about things that they categorized as minor incidents. 
So they went back and interviewed the couples that made it. And they said, hey, we don't, we don't hear you talking about these things. Like you're not fighting about which direction the toilet paper was installed. Why? And they found that almost 70% of the couples admitted this. There are areas of tension that are unresolved that we don't talk about. And that's a good thing. I shared that with my wife. And in her brilliance, she said, well, that's grace. That's giving grace in a relationship. Saying, you're wrong, but I give you grace, right? Which she probably understands a lot more than I do. And number four, we need to realize that only Jesus can meet our deepest needs. Only Jesus can meet our deepest needs. I want to read for you a passage of Scripture that if you're not familiar with this, this should revolutionize the way you think about life. Okay? This is Jesus speaking about himself in John chapter 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The most fundamental human need is to eat and to drink. The, the most basic needs that we have. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? If you look to me to be your bread and your water, you will never be hungry and never be thirsty. Because I will satisfy you. You want to know something? If you're in a relationship and you look to your spouse, if you look to anyone else to be your ultimate source of joy, your ultimate source of love, you will always live disappointed because they can't be that. Only Jesus can be that. And Jesus invites you to look at him as your source. You see, there is no way to live in a healthy, loving relationship when you're depending on your spouse to love you well. Because they won't. But when we look to Jesus as the source of all of our love and affection, when we find Him as the beginning of all of our joy, when we look to Him as the foundation and sustainer of all of our lives, somehow in the context of our relationships, we can experience love. We can experience joy. Because we don't need it from them. But we get to get it from them. See, there's an anthropologist that spent a great deal of time studying the Hopi Indians in Arizona. They're in a, a desert climate. It only rains about two inches a year. I mean, I don't know if y'all know that, but that's not very much. And so as he was studying the, the culture of this Indian tribe, he noticed that all of their, their writings, their, their stories, their songs, their artwork, all referenced rain. He found it to be odd, you know, rain. You don't get any rain. Why are you telling stories about rain when you don't get any rain? Why are you drawing pictures of rain when you don't get any rain? Why are you telling folk tales that have to do with rain when you don't get any rain? So he went to his kind of connection, which was the chief 
of the Indian tribe. And he said, I'm, I'm interested about this. What do you tell all these stories about rain? Why does rain seem to be so central? You don't get any of it. He said, rain is our greatest need. Rain's our greatest need. It's what we think about. It's what we're focused on. He said he remembers that the chief kind of paused and looked at him puzzled. He said, whenever I hear songs that Americans have written, whenever I see TV shows and movies that Americans have written, most of the time they seem to be about love. Do you think perhaps that for your friends their greatest need is love? I tell you today that we live in a culture that is starved for real love. And we've been taught that if we'll marry the right person, they'll love us well. And I'm here to tell you today that they won't. But Jesus will. And if you'll look at him and let him love you well, you can love your spouse well. If you'll look at Jesus and let him be the source of your strength, you can find strength in your relationship. If you'll look at Jesus and let him be the source of all of your joy, your relationship can be joy simply because you found it in him. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you love us so much that you won't leave us alone that you came to earth, that you made a covenant, that you assumed all the responsibility and gave up all your rights so that we could be made right with you. God, today there are many of us that are in the room today and we've looked to other places. We've looked to relationships, maybe to our spouse. We've looked to money. We've looked to, to our jobs. We've looked to friends and family to be the ones that provided love and affirmation and joy to our lives. But God, I pray today that by your grace and mercy, we would realize that we will only live in love and joy and perspective. We'll only live with meaning and hope when we find it in you. So God, today, help us to look to you. Help us to look to you as our source. With every head bowed, eyes closed, I want to ask you today, where has your source been? Have you looked to a relationship to be the source of your strength, your love, your affection, your joy, or have you looked to Jesus? Maybe today, for the first time, for the first moment ever, you can shift that. Maybe today you realize that you will never be fully loved, never be fully known, never be accepted the way you want to be outside of God. So if you're here today and you're that person, you're saying, I want that. I want to experience that with God. I want to have that relationship with Him. How about raise your hand right now? I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Nobody's looking around. Raise your hand if you'd say, that's me. I want that kind of relationship with God. Who else? That's me. I want that. I'm tired of looking to the wrong place. Who else? I'm going to ask a question. This is for everybody. Maybe today you you feel challenged and you feel like there's something that you know God wants you to commit to. 
Maybe today we've talked about something that, that you haven't been doing, something that God reminded you that he wants you to do. Just in a way of, of committing to him, as a way of saying, God, I'm going all in. I want to follow your blueprint. I don't want to do it on my own. How about raise your hand? Just say, God, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. So God, for those of us that are here today, realize that we've, we've got to change some things. We, we've been going by the wrong blueprint. Today we want to go by yours. We ask you to come and through your mercy and grace, help us to do that. God, for those who chose you today instead of what they've been looking at, God, come and be their fulfillment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.